So here you are, you're, re you're resting, abiding as awareness. You're starting to get closer and closer to the ground state of your own brain, kind of the idling rate of your own brain. And there's less and less deliberate doing. Deliberate doing starts dropping out, and you start having more and more of uh, direct experiencing of the truth of things that we are continually being made. This moment of experience is continuously being made by countless factors and processes that we don't own and cannot control. And there can be a shift increasingly as you abide in this deep way of identity. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome back to Collective Insights Podcast. I'm Dr. Dan Stickler, your host for the day, and I have the pleasure of having an outstanding human being by the name of Rick Hansen. He's a psychologist, senior fellow of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and New York Times bestselling author. He has lectured at NASA, Google, Oxford, and Harvard, taught in meditation centers worldwide. His latest book, Neurodharma, explores how neuroscience and ancient wisdom can be combined to achieve seven practices of the highest happiness. And today we're going to be really diving into his latest book, Neurodharma. Um, many of you, I'm sure, have read some of his previous books. Um, but this one was, was fascinating to me because it kind of talked to me about um, some of the stages that I've been going through lately. So, so welcome, Dr. Hansen. It's good to have you here. Well, thank you, Dan. That was a very kind and generous introduction. I appreciate it. I'll try to live up to it. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. So, um, you know, most of your book um, kind of centers around more of the Buddhist teachings, um, but do you incorporate other teachings in that? Uh, great question. So what interested me in that book was the process of really actually reaching the highest possibilities for human potential, and drawing on the wisdom from around the world for the common practices, the common steps in those various routes up the, let's call it, mountain of awakening, mm -hmm. awakening both as a process and a destination. I drew most on the tradition that I know best, which is early Buddhism, which mm -hmm. is highly pragmatic, not metaphysical. It's very practical and direct, especially in a good translation, and thus has a lot of harmony with um, modern science, with its empiricism and pragmatism as well. So I have certainly respect for other traditions, but the one that I drew on myself in terms of reverse engineering, what could possibly be going on in the brain, you know, as people move up that mountain, uh, that particular one was Buddhism. Well, that's that statement kind of uh, makes me think of a question I want to ask you, um, and it's maybe a question you can't answer or or prefer not to. But really, when it comes to consciousness, um, what's your feeling on the the origin? And I'm, I'm not saying from a scientific term necessarily, but do you see consciousness as rising from the organic brain or as an uh, outside? source fundamental question isn't it we're, yeah. we're right we're right there <laughs> the hard I, question <laughs> i worked for a mathematician for a year doing probabilistic risk analyses of the odds of things like nuclear power plants melting down and you know i was the guy in the in the trenches back in 1977 doing fortran you know back in the day <laughs> and uh one thing about him his name was tan kaplan he's probably still alive wonderful fellow he said a real mathematician is someone who wakes up in the morning and, and asks, what is a number, actually? You know, the mm -hmm. fundamentals, the basics. So where I start is with um, uh, our fellow animals with nervous systems, the squirrels in the backyard, the goldfish in the pond I have, uh, chimpanzee, lizard, even a spider. And it seems clear, certainly, that uh, at the level of a goldfish, a lizard, a squirrel, and a monkey, a cat and a dog, they're having experiences. So just in simple terms, there is hearing, there is seeing, there is pain, there is pleasure, simpler than in humans, but certainly the basics, there is awareness, there is lack of awareness. And so at a minimum, 
it seems clear that uh, the processes of experiencing and in a field of awareness uh, are embedded in natural processes at a minimum, at mm-hmm. a minimum, which for me is actually awe-inspiring and moves me right into gratitude. Thank you, 600 million years of evolution of a nervous system. <laughs> and thank you, all our forebears who suffered and died so that tiny incremental advantages could be gradually hardwired into DNA you know, for us to enjoy, including in this conversation today. Then we're at the fundamental question you're getting at. Is there more than mind and matter as we understand it within the natural frame of the expanding Big Bang universe? Is there more to it? than entirely natural processes. Are there supernatural factors, former past lives, discarnate entities, precognition? And there are there transcendental factors, some kind of possible field of unconditionality in which conditioned um, t- expansion of the universe occurs. And in addition to that unconditionality, which is what the Buddha pointed to, he used the language of negation, timelessness, deathless, and so forth. It's pretty bare, pretty stripped down. Uh, not much of an explicit, quote-unquote, God in that. But additionally, mm-hmm. as many people have pointed to, could there also be attributes of some kind of awareness, transpersonal, infinite, cosmic consciousness, woven into the fabric of reality, um, as well as perhaps a kind of benevolence, a love, if you will. So that's the, mm-hmm. that's the question. My own personal answer to it, having tried to frame that question in a clear way, is yes. In other words, I do experience and believe um, that there is a transcendental ground that minimally has qualities of unconditionality, timelessness, and boundlessness, and more and more, partly because I hope it's true and partly because I'm experiencing that it's true, there are aspects or attributes of um, awareness and some kind of fundamental kindness, lovingness yeah. embedded in the fabric of everything. And then mm-hmm. the process for people in general is to be increasingly open if to that possibility and to feel increasingly permeable to it, porous, if you will, you know, more like... Uh, a gauze uh, than a steel curtain, you know, in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, the boundaries between you and capital T that. Uh, and we can explore that, I guess, just to finish in, for me, a, a way that is entirely prepared to stop at the secular boundary and leave it at that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mind and matter alone give us tremendous opportunities. But yeah. also, if it could be true, that there's more than just that. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it? And how can we be respectful of those possibilities and open to them and maybe even increasingly lived by them? Yeah, I I, um, I had a conversation with um, uh, Bo Lotto, who I'm not sure if you know who he is, but he he studies do we see reality similar uh, strain of donald hoffman's uh, work but it was uh it was interesting in my conversations with him in you know looking at this is is consciousness an epic phenomenon of the wet matter of the brain and you know probably four years ago i was i was strictly the scientist i um, had to have proof and all of this stuff and um during my work over the last four years i realized that we don't know anything and that was one of the things that that bolato mentioned he has a tattoo on his wrist and the inside of his wrist that says i know nothing and looking at everything from that standpoint and then you know after the deep dives into um, quantum uh, study, you know, I realized that we can't explain much of anything. And then what we do explain can be unexplained as well. Um, but when you look at Buddhism, and I, I've kind of felt this over time, that Buddhism has a bit of a nihilistic approach to it. Um, uh, I started studying more of Confucianism and the Neo-Confucianism and um, I'm not sure if you have any 
thoughts on that, but uh, with the blending of Confucianism and Buddhism into Neo, um, I found it resonated really well with me and understanding mm. the, the Lian, the essence of, of the person or the thing or um, just throughout um, all of the biosphere that there is a, a life force and a consciousness that overrides all of that. So much in what you're saying. First, I would just say myself, not as a professional philosopher or scientist of consciousness, I do think, and from the sidelines, um, that there's a lot of trouble that happens when we start getting into only human models, mm -hmm. at which point we've left the embeddedness of um, our, our own experiencing. We, there is hearing, there is seeing, there is thinking, there is wanting, there is hating, there is loving. That's occurring. Um, and I think where we will have our greatest clarity emerging over the next century or two, because I think it'll mm -hmm. take about that long for a thoroughgoing, scientifically grounded model of awareness and phenomenology. And, and how is it that the meat makes the mind, right? Mm -hmm. The hard problem. Uh, let's start with simple things. Is a squirrel hearing? Is a squirrel feeling is a squirrel seeing what is what is the minimum necessary basis for that and perhaps sufficient basis for that within an entirely secular frame um, that enables it and we know a lot actually already and I think that's where we're going to um, make the most progress if we step out of for me empty arguments at the level of what is consciousness and who is the consciousness that's disputing the existence of consciousness? Yeah. <laughs> bring it down to the rat, bring it down to the lizard, the cat, the dog, and then build from there. Okay, that's part one. Part two, you said about Buddhism. Uh, nihilism's a funny word. I mean, could you just say what you mean by that one? Well, it's just uh, when, it, yeah, I, I, I like that you asked for clarification on that because when I think of nihilism, my thought processing is along the lines of i think the existence of self uh, that mm -hmm. the self is is kind of disappearing with death and um and even though it transitions on the self is lost at that point or is merged in some way ah wow i was prepared for a whole bunch of hardcore <laughs> science about synapses <laughs> and neurons and we're just it's cool dan i'm really good with this we're like oh, thanks boom fellow practitioners yeah around the coolest questions what okay so um quick if you'll forgive me a quick little primer about basic uh -huh. buddhist thinking okay great so buddhism obviously began with the buddha historically 2500 years ago it's evolved tremendously there are many buddhisms in effect but there's a common heart to them i think of it as like the trunk and the roots of the tree which is then spread with many branches um first one of the fundamental observations of the buddha is completely consistent with the scientific view that most, if not all, phenomena have the nature of being made of parts that are connected and changing. Okay, certainly true for our experiences and um, may not be exactly true for the speed of light. Is it actually changing, right, you know, and so forth. But most things are made of parts in the material universe, are made of parts that are connected and changing. All right, therefore they are, in the technical term, empty of self-determined essence or solidity. They occur, they exist. The category error would be to infer from the empty nature of phenomena that phenomena don't exist. They exist emptily as process, as mm -hmm. interdependently arising process. Okay, including that very durable <laughs> and sticky feeling that I really am an I. <laughs> You know, and uh, I've written about it. <clears throat> I made the point that <clears throat> the presumed conventional I or me, the sort of entity that we tend to think is, quote unquote, inside the other person, typically in the head, uh, is presumed to exist because it is unified, enduring, and independent. Mm -hmm. But to summarize a ton of stuff, if you look into your experience, you don't find 
that the sense of self or its various aspects is in fact unified, enduring, and independent. It's made up of many parts that are changing and are connected to wider processes that you know make it make its make its existing its existingness. Okay, great. Same in the brain, the neural substrates of self-related representations, processes, so forth, are also widely distributed throughout the whole brain, not unified. They're widely dynamic, continually changing these various activations that underlie the sense of self. They're not enduring, and they're not independent. They occur and, and change based on various factors. Okay, so the presumed self, uh, we can think about it like we can think about a unicorn but we don't think a unicorn exists, right? In much the same way the presumed self, in my view, is, a, is like a unicorn. That said, mm -hmm. there are persons. You're a person, I'm a person. Persons have rights and responsibilities. And it's very helpful to clarify the distinction between personing as a process and selfing. Now that's all within the natural frame. And that's a great way into taking life less personally. It's, it's really helpful. Yeah. And paradoxically, I'm a longtime psychotherapist, so I have that, that those roots as well. It, it's actually through the internalization of healthy social supplies in early childhood and then repairing what was lacking in childhood in adulthood. It's through the internalization, paradoxically, of, of uh, being appreciated, included, liked, loved, cherished, Narcissistic supplies in the technical language of clinical psychology, paradoxically, it's through actually internalizing these and filling up the hole in the heart that we gradually we become less self-centered, less egoic, less conceited, less arrogant, usually. We have to internalize it, right? So that's mm -hmm. pretty wild. Now, the whole thing about um, is there not an eternal soul, which was the uh, view of the Buddha's time that he critiqued, he argued against some kind of independent, uh, uh, n you know, eternal soul. Okay, you know, and then um, people can maybe disagree about that. Certainly, many people in the Christian tradition would disagree with that. Uh, but you know, the way I myself look at it is that reincarnation, rebirth, let's call it. Maybe. I think there's actually quite a surprising amount of evidence for it, even though how in the world do you explain it within science? I mean, that's a supernatural phenomenon. It's super. It's beyond nature to have any kind of rebirth of any qualities mysteriously. Like, what? You know what I mean? Yeah. But beyond that, and in a way that I find really quite beautiful and, and reliable, is to recognize emotion is to is to feel what you recognize the felt recognition that each of us to use a familiar analogy is like a wave in the ocean we we are we have our personing for a time we have our we are if there is a particular wave with its own seaweed and foam you're a person i'm a person there are persons and to feel more and more deeply you know every day a little bit more maybe that you're waveness, your personness, is the result of thousands of factors flowing through you. You are a local expression of 10,000 causes extending all the way back to the Big Bang, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that'll take you into a lot of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And eventually, your wave will subside. All eddies, I use the metaphors you know from the book, of yeah. eddies in a stream. All eddies disperse eventually, but the streaming of reality is of course ongoing. And so we return to the sea. All right, and all along our nature was water. And to feel that increasingly is available to us. You don't need anything supernatural or metaphysical for it. And honestly, it, it makes it really okay for me to yeah. contemplate on my own death. I've had people dear to me, my parents, some friends, you know, die. and. Uh, it's no small thing for a particular wave to subside, a particular person to go. There's sorrow, there's consequences sometimes, and all the rest of that. And, you know, we were always water, <laughs> and we're returning to the sea. Thich Nhat Hanh is super good on this. Uh, yeah. as a, bless his memory, as you may know his work. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, thank you for that. That uh, that that helps quite a bit in in my understanding of the that Buddhist um, the mindset that they have. Um, and I, you know, I loved Buddhism. It was my first uh, kind of non-Christian exploration was was Buddhism, and you know, I practiced a lot of that uh, through the years, and it's helped me to to move along this this spectrum that i've been journeying yeah. um but i do want to get back into some of the science stuff as you say uh, <laughs> reel it in dan <laughs> yeah i know Come back. i want to but by I'm the way i gotta it. say i've been really in i started out you know in my practice in, in early buddhism and it's become increasingly gobsmacked by uh and informed by the so-called mahayana the later developments in um tibetan chinese you know, really informed by Taoism. My ears perked right up when you said that, and mm -hmm. then flowing into Japan and into the West. And you may know the book China Root by David Hinton. If I not, I highly that. recommend it to you okay. and your listeners. I think you'll just go right, go, wow, yep. Beautiful book about um, how Zen, I used to think Zen was Buddhism with a splash of Taoism. No, <laughs> yeah. Zen is Taoism with a little splash of Buddhism. And then you have Chan, you know, and the other, and Chan mm -hmm. masters and so forth. Wonderful stuff, just beautiful. Just resting in the, you know, the hinge of reality of emptiness, somethingness, right? Uh, you know, absence, presence continuously. And, and, and that is the, the ultimate ground of, of all and resting in that is the ultimate expression of full awakening uh, yeah I love that uh, you talk about peak experiences in your book and this is this is an area that um, we work with our clients on on really identifying peak experiences and, mm. and having those as often as possible uh, can you <laughs> expound on peak experiences well okay uh, we were joking uh, before we started uh, just about, at least in my case, being kind of wildly task-driven and being the source of those tasks. And I quoted the saying from the psychedelic era, you ate it, you ride it. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> well, uh, let's say that we're going to approach this uh, for simplicity inside the natural frame, initially at least. Okay, what's going on in the body while people are having, let's say, classic... Uh, non-dual or also termed self-transcendent experiences, which have these two major attributes in which the sense of being a contracted, separated, beleaguered entity or self really falls away, boom, mm -hmm. while simultaneously reality as a whole shines forth in radiant perfection, often with a sense of just timelessness, peacefulness, no problem, etc. Those experiences can be uh, somewhat informed, shaped, uh, enhanced, let's say, by different cultural traditions. Uh, people have those experiences around the world. They're widely reported. Uh, surveying people, probably at least one or three people have had some kind of experience like that. William James certainly talked about mm -hmm. it, Maslow and others. Uh, so what in the world is going on in the brain, right, when people are having that, and how can we use that? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk about methods distinct from psychedelics. All right. Psychedelics, mm -hmm. lots of research these days. I've used psychedelics quite a bit, especially when I was younger. Uh, there are people who are really specialists about that, and I'll defer to them in a way and so forth. Mm -hmm. One of the central things that seems to happen when a person is having uh, the the whole enchilada, the, fire, the full fireworks experience, is that arguably a normal perceptual rhythm in us that moves back and forth between an egocentric perspective of that's self-referential into an allocentric perspective. These are terms that are used in the science of this, mm -hmm. in which there's a, a sense of things as a whole impersonally without privileging me, without privileging oneself in, in the sense of things as a whole. We need both of those perspectives to function. They seem to have evolved because they helped our human hominid and primate and mammalian ancestors and so forth survive. Um, 
it seems that what happens when people drop into being everything, it's that the conventional egocentric perceptual structuring of our experience drops out. How to get it to drop out, it's not entirely clear. One notion is that there's some basic switches inside the thalamus, this sensory switchboard in the brain. Technically, as you know, there are two thalami, okay, one on either side, but call it a thalamus. And it could well be that that switch that moves us back and forth normally between an egocentric and an allocentric frame gets stuck in allocentrism. All right, what are some of the factors that promote that? Well, that sense of the sort of impersonal or transpersonal totality of everything, gestalt of everything, is also supported by networks in the right hemisphere that give us a gestalt perspective and disengage activity in the midline of the cortex that's very involved in self-referential processing, divided from the world, either by engaging in tasks that we're, we're you know, taking care of with frontline activation in the midline cortex, or we're daydreaming or ruminating, uh, in which there's a strong sense of self and I, in both cases, based in the default mode network. So those midline cortices uh, drop out in terms of their activation, a lateral, typically right-sided for right-handed people because that's the hemisphere of the brain that goes, does holistic gestalt processing occurs. And also, uh, mental time travel stops. When we reduce midline activation, we're right in the present and rested in especially the alerting aspect of attention in which things are happening, but we're not conceptualizing about them. We're not trying to timelessness space. Timelessness. Well. Yeah. Yeah. So neurologically, we're starting to form plausible. Neuroscience is a baby science. I think, you know, there's a lot of gee whiz about brain science we have to be careful about and claiming authority if you happen to have access to an MRI. Uh, we gotta be careful about that. But still, we know more than nothing. Why not use what we know? Um, so we have just quickly summarize, we have these switches in the thalamus. Now they're, they're locked onto allocentrism, things as a whole. We have related circuitry potentially in the right hemisphere of the brain and a quieting of you know, dualistic, um, separated uh, processing supported by midline cortices. We're also rested in these attentional systems that really, really, really bring us into the present. By the way, those circuits, um, the little switches in the thalamus are regulated by GABA, a major neurochemical, that's very involved with the experiences of tranquility. So often mm. there's a sense of great tranquility for the person. One thing that promotes the shift into the, uh, these lateral networks in the right hemisphere and coming into the present moment is surprise. So often there's a kind, sometimes there's a sort of surprise that initiates these self-transcendent experiences. The frog croaks, the famous episodes in Zen, the bottom falls out of the bucket, the, you know, the evening star, Venus, the planet, appears, you know, the Zen master shouts. <laughs> Suddenly there's a surprise, boom! We open into everything and then we get kind of stuck there. Uh, mm -hmm. Typically also with tremendous feelings of well-being. So I'm not trying to be mechanistically reductionistic here, but trying to honor actually the embodiedness, the embeddedness of these experiences, which then go, because I'm, I'm a practical person, I'm really interested in practice, how can we cultivate these factors, neurological fact, plausible factors that are worth doing in their own right, that could make us more accident prone, more prone to grace? Right, more open to grace of these ba-boom, full fireworks experiences, and along the way have, in the Tibetan saying, moments of awakening many times a day, with each moment being like a pinhole in the dark shroud that obscures reality as it is, but moment after moment, pinhole after pinhole, that shroud starts becoming gauzier lacier and more permeable, mm -hmm. and we start being more aware of in an ongoing daily way of the light, as it were, that was always already there. So to summarize, training in um, a, a wider view, training in uh, taking 
things as a whole. Being in nature is very supportive of this. You're, you're talking earlier about Costa Rica and things of that sort. I was recently in nature in the Sierra Nevada and California, deeply meaningful. Um, appreciating native wisdom, indigenous first people wisdom about our embeddedness in, in the wider world, in the allness of it all. Uh, training in tranquility, uh, training in taking life less personally, relaxing the contracted death grip you know, of the ordinary ego eye. Good, you know that. And also supporting oneself and one's basic needs, right? Uh, when you don't feel like your basic needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection are being met enough in the present, if you don't experience it, maybe they actually are, but you don't believe it or feel it, experiencing it, you know, when you don't feel that your needs are met enough, nor, you know, the, the brain does what it knows how to do, which is to keep that monkey alive by having a kind of separated, stressed, me against the world attitude, which is kind of contra, you know, uh, you know, the self-transcendent uh, experiences. There are cases where people were in agonizing pain or great difficulty and suddenly transitioned into the self-transcendent mode. But very often, um, if you're running for your life, it's hard to just bliss out into oneness <laughs> with reality. Okay. I, what do you, and, and then last, last, last. So even if, now I've, I've moved beyond the natural frame, even if the underlying causes and conditions of these breakthrough experiences with fireworks and the frequent pinpricks on a daily basis, let's say, even if, the, even if the basis for that, let's say, is entirely physical material within the ordinary reality, still that which is revealed potentially about what might be supernatural or transcendental um, is not any less what it is if the pulling back of the curtains of the you know, windows and doors of perception, Aldous Huxley talked about that, uh, is achieved through natural, physical, material means. Yeah. Really important point. Well, you brought up uh, two of my favorite topics, neuroscience and psychedelics there. And so I have to dive into something that you talk about in the book and yeah. you just mentioned briefly here is the medial um, processing, yeah. the midline processing versus the lateral. Yeah. And um, and specifically also talking about the default mode network. Yeah. Um, what I have uh, experienced and what I have studied about um, is that many of the psychedelics, um, LSD, psilocybin, um, ketamine, they have a propensity to uh, turn off the lateral prefrontal cortex to allow bottom-up processing and there's also this, and a lot of studies on the ketamine where it's this mm. shaking up of the default mode network. It's like the, you know, the river flowing and you just shake it up and it, it starts yeah. another set of flows. I mean, what are your thoughts on, on these subjects? Oh, I, I think th those both seem like plausible operationalizations of some of the mm. major factors that could lead to what we see. It's a little bit like um, we see a good result from an intervention. You know, the intervention A leads to the good result C. We're not very clear about the intermediate process B, whereby it does that. And that can be actually said about many widely prescribed, routinely prescribed uh, psychotropic medications like antidepressants. Mm -hmm. is still not entirely clear at all how in mm -hmm. the world the, th the stuff they're doing observably, you know, at the synaptic level translates to uh, improved mood and less vulnerability to catastrophic mm -hmm. depression. Like, huh. So it doesn't mean they don't work. We're learning how they work. All right, that's it. Mm -hmm. um, what I take from this is that, uh, A, yes, let's, let's explore farm, you know, psychedelic interventions. Let's, let's do it carefully. Let's be thoughtful about, first of all, do no harm. Fantastic, fantastic, fantastic. And along with that, what can we do to uh, prepare people for those trips so they have the most impact? And then especially afterward, you know, help integration to occur, which involves lasting processes of neuroplastic change in the brain, of learning. Many of us have had 
fantastic peak experiences. And, you know, as Jack Cornfield put it at the title of his book, after the ecstasy, the laundry. <laughs> you know, and we come back, and there are a lot of people, I'm sure you know them, who've had fantastic awakenings. And, you know, a week later, a year later, honestly, they're still as much of a jerk as ever, uh, or as unhappy as ever, or as harmful to other people as ever, or as addicted to alcohol as ever. So, you know, that's especially what interests me. How do we produce lasting beneficial change in the brain, all right, through positive neuroplasticity, essentially? And as someone who, uh, and they're like, for, you know, I, my state of mind is really pretty cool, and I, I'm a little thoughtful about do I really want to, I mean, we need to respect these medicines, plant medicines and, you know, things like ketamine. Uh, it's serious. So a lot of people are not going to be doing psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, which is very resource-intensive, as you know, and typically mm -hmm. expensive as heck for, a, you know, in most cases. So what are the ordinary practices that we can do in daily life? So right off the top, you named two things that let's just talk about how to engage um, plausibly mental practices that would reduce top-down tight control associated with the, you know, with the upper outer regions of the prefrontal cortex. Um, so there's more space for bottom-up processing. How could we train in that in everyday life? Similarly, how can we decrease um, default mode activity so that we're not so sucked into it and shake it up? Right? Can, can you quickly define um, bottom-up versus top-down for the sure. listeners? Great. And I hope I'm not speaking over long. I mean, you're asking such oh, fantastic no, questions. No, I feel I mean, part of my job is to kind of this is great. <laughs> clear the underbrush or acknowledge distinctions. Okay, great. Uh, well, let it, I think of this a lot around motivation. It's a, it's, it's a useful example, top-down versus bottom-up. Top-down says to me, Rick, you're getting old. You got you to gotta lift weights more. Get out there. Quit screwing around. Do it. It's like an inner boss, right? The inner, and, inner critic, as some people call it. Well, there's, there could be the critic, but in, in a, even if you separate, separate out the critic, there can be a guide, there can yeah. be a director, right? And there can be a tracker of when you're getting off the trail, okay, in addition <laughs> to the potential of that, ne you know, affectively negative inner critic. Okay, so that's top-down. We're, we're all familiar with top-down. There's a place for it. You know, we teach our children greater top-down self-regulation. We, we talk to ourselves. We tell ourselves... Don't do it. There you are. You're with your partner. I've been married 40 years uh, or something else, and you want to say something. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> or really do it. you got to go brush your teeth or really do you know something. Okay, that's top-down. Yeah. Top-down control is effortful, and it exposes us to what's called willpower fatigue, and we're all probably familiar with that. Bottom-up motivation is a matter of tuning more into somatic, emotional, um, more visceral systems in the brain that are more ancient in terms of the evolution of the neuroaxis over 600 million years from the bottom up, in which we essentially get a sense of what it would be like to fulfill this motivation. What would it be like to exercise? And what are the rewards of what that would be like? What would it feel like? What would, it, what would be good about it? Um, and also, what would it be like to be that person who easily exercises and lifts weights? Because he's got a machine in the garage he ought to use, right? And in effect, we can give over to those more uh, bottom-up uh, motivations that rise like a current or a wellspring to carry us along. Uh, we, in effect, we exercise, it's the paradox, we autonomously exercise our will to surrender to ways of being that naturally move us down paths we want to follow. And that mode of motivation from the bottom up is not vulnerable to willpower fatigue. 
It, mm -hmm. it feels rewarding along the way. Um, it's, it's whole body, it's whole being. It's not like the inner boss, you know, is directing you and the rest of you wants to rebel. Uh, mm -hmm. So that would be an example of okay. top down, bottom up. Uh, both are necessary. Sometimes people, you know, I would say in, you know, a thousand years of Western philosophy, somewhat science has tended to privilege top down control. And religion has tended to privilege top-down control. And you see versions of that in psychoanalysis, right? So in which we have the top-down superego and ego needing to regulate the bottom-up primal um, id, which in a religious framework could be considered to be saturated with sin and bad and nasty and so forth. Um, on the other hand, I think there are people who uh, really could use some more executive function. <laughs> <laughs> and they can use a little more top-down regulation, including uh, you know, impulses that harm other people. Uh, so both are needed. The brain works together. But I think for a lot of people, they're, you know, they've been trained fairly in Western cultures, certainly you know, developing cultures, uh, in executive function, top-down regulation, and, and maybe elsewhere around the world. They really could use more of a sense of getting in touch with their depths. Mm -hmm. And becoming more comfortable with them and more trusting in them, trusting in those steps rather than feeling like you've got to white knuckle your way through life because otherwise ugh, you're going to make some terrible mistake. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talked, and uh, this is a question I, I had to get to. I've got, I didn't, haven't asked any of the questions that I had listed here. Because so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm blathering on too much. That's no, why. no, because I was just interested in the uh, free flow of the questions that I personally had actually. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully it'll be valuable to uh, listeners, but yeah. you talk about the monkey mind in yeah. the book. And, you know, one of the things that, that has been part of my journey here has been, you know, recognizing uh, the monkey mind and the, uh, that inner voice and, and recognizing it as, this is my creation and I'm looking at it almost like a third person where I, oh. I seeing my awareness, but then I have an awareness of my awareness. And, and that's, that's kind of a strange feeling when, when you get to that point yeah. and you talk a little bit about that in the, in the later stages of mm -hmm. this, this progression that you have in the book. Yeah. Well, first off, Dan, just respects. Um, I didn't realize coming into this that you had so much personal depth of practice and development and just factually, you know, rec recognizing what's the case. Uh, you're speaking to a progression that many have named, which I think is useful to think of in three steps that loosely blur into each other. Step one, focused attention. For example, being able to rest your attention in the sensations of breathing, one breath after another, 10 breaths in a row, 100 breaths in a row, wandering a little bit and then coming right back, focused attention. Mm -hmm. Over time, and there are certain practices that go right to it, you move into open awareness in which there's not such an immersion in some particular object of attention that you're becoming concentrated in for various purposes, but there's a, a resting in a sense of spaciousness and openness and being with the continually changing contents in the field of awareness, all right, open awareness, which then increasingly starts to become abiding as awareness. The contents of awareness tend to get quieter. The body is becoming more tranquil. The verbal chatter gets quieter and quieter and softer. And there you are more and more in this um, just resting in awareness, in which from time to time there can be a recognition, oh, this is resting in awareness. Now, of course, as soon as you have that thought, you're not so much resting in awareness, and then there's some skillfulness in releasing that thought. And factors like not knowing, allowing not knowing, allowing don't know mind, <clears throat> perhaps a sense of mystery and so forth. Okay. Then a very interesting thing can start to happen as doing this increasingly drops out. Let's say during a meditative state. We can't function this way in everyday life all the time. I want to be clear about that. But in training here, our 
ordinary functioning of doing can become increasingly grounded in and saturated with being, as a, in the feeling of being. So here you are, you're, re, you're resting, abiding as awareness. You're starting to get closer and closer to the ground state of your own brain, kind of the idling rate of your own brain. And there's less and less deliberate doing. Deliberate doing starts dropping out, and you start having more and more of uh, direct experiencing of the truth of things that we are continually being made. This moment of experience is continuously being made by countless factors and processes that we don't own and cannot control. And there can be a shift increasingly as you abide in this deep way of identity away from the conventional constructed sense of being a Rick, right? Or, you know, a Dan. And instead, identity starts to be more and more blurred and um, mm -hmm. edgeless uh, with the sense of allness manifesting this, this, this moment of experience, this moment of physicality, mm -hmm. this locally. It's just really quite a profound process that it seems that you're deeply engaged with. Yeah, it uh, it was frustrating for my wife, uh, who's our CEO, because uh, I just got to the point at one point, I was just like, what's, what's the point of working and money doesn't mean anything to me. And, you know, it, it was it was a rough stage to uh, to kind of kind of work through and I'm not completely wow. through it yet. Yeah. Uh, but I, I love the aspects of your book that, that really kind of resonated with me and, yeah. um, and feel like I'm not like the only person no, no, no. experiencing this and it's oh, broken it's or something. If I could just offer, um, um, it, people we, like I've, I rock climb less, but still mm -hmm. some. I'm proud to say I climbed 5'9 at 69, reason, reasonably, 5.9 wow. in the U.S. Nice. system. Pretty good. And <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I looked at people who are better than me in that particular way. Like, how can I learn from them? And how can I reverse engineer their qualities? And how can I be uh, inspired? And how can I have confidence that the path is worth, worth wa walking through their example, right? And what we see uh, in the territory of our conversation is that the people who've gone really far along, the saints and sages throughout history and different traditions, and many, many people that are not famous at all, who do they almost always increasingly become? Kind, loving, strong, resilient, mm -hmm. dedicated to others, engaged in the world. And along the way, sometimes related to experiences that have been had, there need to be periods of integration and uh, sorting things out and letting things kind of shake out. But eventually, they don't wander off into the wilderness staring at their navel, just self-indulgently happy with themselves. You know, <laughs> they're, still, they're still engaged. They're still functioning. Uh, and I guess... Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes of a, uh, a line from T.S. Eliot in his religious poem, Ash Wednesday, which can be understood in that frame mm -hmm. or in a secular frame. I love it. His line, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to mm -hmm. sit still. And right there we have the classic Buddhist and found in other traditions, integration really of compassion and equanimity. And we swing sometimes between those two and the rhythms of our days, uh, more one, more the other. Uh, I'm pretty swung into compassion these days because I'm involved in the development of a global compassion coalition uh, that's just in its first months or so of getting started. Uh, other times, it's important for people to swing more into equanimity, you know, where they're, they're just deeply at peace way, way, way inside themselves. And then over time, the two together. So I, if you're not, you will keep paying the bills and, you know, <laughs> all the rest of that. Yeah. 
Well, if I had my way, I could, I'd stay on here for two hours. Uh, I would too. Kind of dive into <laughs> your knowledge base. I've, I've really enjoyed this, um, but we're going to have to, uh, to cut out yeah. here. Um, but I would love to have you back on to kind of follow up on this and go a little bit further uh, with the, with the journey that we, we've. It would began. be a delight. Um and I say that as someone who's trying to do less and less in the realm of work, I would very much welcome this. And I would welcome the chance to also talk about practices, you know, actual um, mm -hmm. steps people can take grounded in science uh, that really plausibly yeah. move us along, you know, the path of awakening, broadly stated, while being very clear that these qualities, these inner strengths that in the book, as you know, I summarize in, as seven, uh, universal mm -hmm. features of awakening, steadiness of mind, lovingness of heart, fullness and equanimity, a sense of wholeness, resting in the present, nowness, opening into everything allness, with uh, a respect for timelessness, respect for mystery. Uh, you know, these qualities are incredibly useful in the stressful trenches of daily life, right? It's not just for self-indulgent, privileged people wandering up you know uh, their their path is for regular people all of us in everyday life to develop more and more of an unshakable uh, core of resilient well-being that is opening more and more into the upper reaches of human potential so I'd love to talk with you more about all of that great and and for the listeners out there um, Rick outlines these steps in Neurodharma. So uh, be sure to get a copy if there's something that's interested you or like me, you're going through some existential work and, uh, and need, need some support there. <laughs> so thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us. And for me, I don't see this as work. This, yeah. this was just a fun Did conversation. Super duper so, for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is just being. Yeah, that's great. So. Thank you, Dan. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.